I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 68 for December 2017. Mm -hmm. Yep, this is our end of year episode where we look back on our year in cinema and out a few awards. And we're going to review a new film, I believe, too. Yes. Uh, What's out at the cinemas? Is there something big? I'm not sure. Well, I'm Duncan, and in 1968, the top grossing film was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Could you imagine such a meditative, unconventional film topping the box office in 2017? Uh, also, 68, year of the greatest Western film ever made, Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. Um, <laughs> when we do our What Came Out in the Year of intros, I normally pick horror movies, obviously, because, you know, that's my bag, as mm-hmm. the kids say. <laughs> uh, but 68 gives me a dilemma, because 68 was the year of the untouchable Night of the Living Dead, uh, the immortal Rosemary's Baby, the wonderful Witchfinder General. Uh, and the legendary Boris Karloff's final film and Peter Bogdanovich's first, Targets. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I'm going to pick an old gem that could do with some more loving. Mm-hmm. Writer-director Jack Hill's Spider Baby, uh, a, a defiantly cult classic that features Lon Chaney Jr. giving a rare good performance. <laughs> I, I actually say great performance. And an early appearance by genre favourite Sid Haig. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spider Baby is a goofy, fun and surprisingly heartfelt tale of murderous of, of a murderous clan facing the end of their existence. Um, some I might be fudging this one a bit. I had heard it come out in late late sixty seven, but a lot of places seem to say early sixty eight. Right, but I guess spoiler alert fans will cut me some slack. Yeah, I I'm hope. sure they will. Yeah, yeah um, I haven't seen Spider Baby, but I am aware of it uh, mainly because of the uh, Phantomus do the yeah. t- theme tune. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. Crazy theme tune. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So Simon, what have you been watching? Well, a bit, obviously, but I'm going to talk about one in particular. And look, it struck me that one of the amazing things about Star Wars to me is that. It's kind of an outlier. Outside of the Guardians of the Galaxy, no one has managed to capture that kind of winning combination of romance, fantasy, adventure, and science fiction. The many films were tried, but they always seem to get it wrong, confusing colour and chaos with world building, uh, wild alien species with relatable characters, and spectacular effects with kind of plausibility and and, and a lived-in universe. Now that Star Wars is back and an annual event... It seems less likely that anyone can get in on that action. Yeah, true, good point. Um, which leads me to Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Ooh. It's a Luke Besson film, so you'd expect some crazy. Yet the beginning is compelling. A really wordless montage that shows the development of the City of a Thousand Planets from a small space station to a kind of floating intergalactic United Nations where species from across the universe gather together, together and live mostly peacefully. Mm-hmm. It's really quite compelling. And then from there we are introduced to a peaceful... Navi-like race who inhabit a kind of serene, idyllic world that looks like your favourite beachfront holiday every day. (laughs) Uh, It's a bit cliched, perhaps, but it's also beautifully rendered. Uh, That world is destroyed in a stunning sequence as a space battle tears through their planet. And then we're introduced to Major Valerian and Sergeant Laureline, the heroes of our film, two interplanetary super agents, like the universe's version of a pair of 007s. And things really go downhill badly now. All right. Uh, it's just so very hard to buy Dane DeHaan, uh, who I know best as the super-powered teen runner mock in uh, Chronicle. Yeah. Um, and who others might know as the most recent incarnation of the Green Goblin. As a womanizing action man? Yeah. Uh, especially after he's introduced shirtless and trying desperately to get on with Carla Delevingne's Laureline. Neither of these two look physically powerful enough to be the badasses we're supposed to believe they are. And frankly, they seem to be preoccupied anyway. Valerian is mostly interested in adding Laureline to his extensive list of conquests he refers to as his playlist, which is charming. And Laureline is mostly interested in discovering if Valerian truly loves her or not. And by the way, once again, love of love kind of is the fifth element in this film. Ah. Um, just spoiler. Uh, <laughs> when they both take turns beating on Clive Owen at the end, um, Owen is the bad guy, by the way. Uh, that's not much of a spoiler since when you first meet him, you think, you will turn out to be the bad guy. <laughs> But when they're both beating up on him, you feel downright confused because there's no way either of these two should be able to best Clive Owen. Mm. Um, and there's no way you want to see that happen either. It's Clive <laughs> Owen, man. The film around them is, of course, frequently a marvel and beautiful to look at, full of wild alien species and dazzling designs. 
but it's just so hard to get me to care about Besson's gloriously absurd world when I've got to spend it in the company of these characters. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen this, uh, but I saw the trailer. Yeah. And the trailer kind of left me a little cold. Like I was, I didn't really kind of get what it was about. And the two lead characters, or lead actors, probably more than the characters because they didn't have much of their character in there. They just didn't really inspire me either. I, I don't necessarily mind either of those actors. Mm. I just think they're really miscast. Anyway, uh, what about yourself? What have you been watching? Uh, I've watched a few films, but the one that I'd like to talk about is Edge of Seventeen. Uh, writer and director Kelly Freeman Craig's script has a real sense of purpose and movement as her lead character tears like a hurricane through her days, looking for the appropriate target to place her ferocious angst. Uh, Haley Steinfeld controls the performance with such precision that it's actually difficult to think of another actress of her age that could guide the audience between hating, pitying, and cheering for Nadine, often in the same scene. Um, perhaps Cesar Ronan might be able to do it, uh, who seems to be hitting similar territory with uh, Greta Gerwig's much-lauded Ladybird at present. So I hear. Uh, but for me, Edge of Seventeen falters a little in its final moments, but it has such likable characters who are willing to interact with Nadine from her nerdy classmate Hayden Sesto's almost Coen Brothers-esque speech pattern to Woody Harrelson's warm but harsh teacher, armed with devastating one-liners to defuse any of Nadine's insult bombs. The script also allows these supporting characters to breathe without feeling the need to give them aimless subplots. But what these extra moments afford us is recognising that these characters as individuals with separate and real emotions and desires. Edge of 17 is a top draw debut from Craig, and Steinfeld proves once more, after similarly commanding work in True Grit, that she's a young actor of unique ability. Uh, she's really good in this, and... Kelly Freeman Craig apparently sent the script to James L. Brooks because she was a huge fan of his work, and he said, yeah, I'll produce this. Oh, wow. And it's totally in his wheelhouse. You can think that every line must have been poured over, especially when she's launching at people. You're like, am I driving this character too far? But you still kind of root for her. Oh, that sounds great. I genuinely don't know much about this. I mean, I've heard of it. but Yeah, and she got nominated for a Golden Globe, I think, uh, right. last year for it. So I uh, didn't win, obviously, but yeah. She's really good in it, so I recommend um, checking it out. My entire generation is a bunch of mouth breathers. They literally have a seizure if you take their phone away for a second. They can't communicate without emojis, and they actually think that the world wants to know that they are eating a taco! Exclamation point, smiley face, smiley face. I am an old soul. I like old music and old movies and old, even old people. Bottom line is I have nothing in common with the people out there, and they have nothing in common with me. Nadine? Max? Maybe nobody likes you. So, Simon, what's the news? All right, well, first of all, updates on the Robin Hood reboot no one wants. Karen Egerton, this generation's hooded man, God help us all, confirms he will be a flawed hero who grows into the legend that it will be darker, grittier, and funny. Because whenever I hear the words dark and gritty, I automatically think laughs. <laughs> Just a reminder, Jamie Foxx will be Little John. Yeah. Also, Egerton uses the word revisionist, which should send shivers down any right-thinking person's spine. <laughs> um, I hate everything about this. I even hate myself for talking about it. Yep. Uh, it's just a, uh, a a buzzword creation machine that you've you've got you've got your hands on there with revisionist and gritty, dark, and dark. gritty, but funny, but funny. Yeah. Well, they yeah, are merry yeah, men, yeah. after all, so, you know. Yeah, dark, gritty, merry men. Yeah. <laughs> but in a flood of fantasy and superhero trailers dropping, one that has made a small ripple is the intriguing Annihilation from Ex Machina's writer-director Alex Garland, starring Natalie Portman as a biologist who enters a new dimension to discover who or what is responsible for her husband's now comatose condition. Joining her team of armed scientists is Jennifer Jason Lee, And what's striking is that it appears, from the trailer anyway, that every character is female. Uh, the trailer plays like the arrival mixed with a Predator film and has enough intrigue, gunplay, and scares to raise interest. Yeah, um, I've got some more news on this, Tad. Yeah, excellent. Season. But look, yeah, it is completely lovely looking. Oh, I really like that trailer, yeah. Super fascinated by it. Um, so it's a, a co-production between Netflix and Paramount. And Paramount have apparently gotten cold feet and so the film won't get a cinema release outside of America, Canada, and China, I think. Right. So you'll have to see it on Netflix here, which is kind of a shame because if the trailers can go by it, it should be amazing. 
But but the nice news about the reason they're not going to release it is there were some test screenings and audiences were apparently a bit confused about it. The uh, Paramount wanted to change it and Garland's producer said, nah, this is it. Right. Take it as it is. Nice. Which I'm happy about. Yeah. You know? So the vision you will see will be his vision, which is exciting. That's great. That's that's really encouraging news, actually. Yeah, because I, I like that. We talk about you talk about Valerian, and you know it's just a trailer not quite grabbing you, even though like the, you say the visuals, you're like, oh, that's impressive. But I found with Annihilation that here's the plot, and very simply, here's here's the setup, and it just I found it intriguing. So whether it pans out, I'm not sure, but um, it did enough to draw me in. So and I did see that it was going to be. Two weeks after release, it will be on Netflix. So that's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, which is good. But yeah, it does look divine, eh? Mm. And in worst possible idea for establishing a movie universe, since Universal preemptively announced a buffet of monster films prior to their first outing, The Mummy coming out and stinking up the multiplex news, the Scooby Doo cinematic universe, <laughs> which yes is a thing, and yes I have reported on before, it will be firing at the mystery machine with the Daphne and Velma prequel film. Now, don't get me wrong. I have no beef with either of these crime-fighting ladies, but I do have an issue with starting your Scooby-Doo-Dooniverse. Scooby-Doo-Dooniverse? Yeah. Do we think? Scooby-Doo-Dooniverse? Scooby-Dooniverse? I don't know. Without Scooby-Freaking-Doo. I know they probably think they'll work up to that, tease us for the reveal of the cowardly, snack-munching, largely accidental crime-solver, but I, for one, don't have the patience for that. If they're going <laughs> to... Look at me getting excited <laughs> about this. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to have Scooby-Doo, I want a Scooby and Shaggy origin story now. Damn it. I want that first. That is remarkable. Yeah, it is. I mean, I actually don't want any of this, but if you're going to do it, at least start with Scooby and Shaggy. How is this How, how is this even... I My brain cannot compute this. How is it even possible that they're going to have separate films for these characters? I don't, I don't understand. I think they will have to have Scooby in this. Yeah. They will have to. They will bow to that pressure because... What are you going to put in your trailer? Yeah. If you don't reveal Scooby, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Tarantino continues to be brainstorming in public by the sounds of it as he has moved from his Manson family film to a possible period setting crime drama and, of course, his Star Trek film. And word is that he wants it to be R-rated with blood violence and foul language. Perhaps Alien meets Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Let's hope it's not Species meets Four Rooms. Either way, it seems antithetical to the Star Trek vision, however, to have like a bloodthirsty venture. But Tarantino may be enough of a name to pull off a switch in direction for the long-established egalitarian franchise. But I just thought that, when I actually thought about Star Trek and Tarantino, that's a bizarre mix. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, eh? Um, I felt the same when I heard this news as well. This doesn't sound right. No, it doesn't sound right at all. Manson? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, here's my bold prediction, though. It'll be better than the Daphne and Velma Scooby-Doo origin story. Well, how about Tarantino does the Daphne and Velma Scooby-Doo origin story? Will that be R-rated? Will there be lots yeah. of foul language? Yeah. You can just call it Reservoir Dogs. Perfect. I think the average stormtrooper knows how to install a toilet main. All they know is killing in white uniforms. All right, as we did last December, and as we'll no doubt do every year, for the rest of our damn lives, <laughs> we're going to finish off the year by reviewing the latest Star Wars film, Star Wars The Last Jedi, starring Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Adam Driver, Oscar Isaac, Laura Dern, and Benicio Del Toro, and written and directed by Ryan Johnson. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, the Resistance is once more on the run being hunted down by the First Order. Finn, a new recruit, Rose, attempts to save the fleeing fleet by tracking down a codebreaker who can infiltrate the First Order ship, and dismantle its tracking device. Meanwhile, Rey is trying to convince Jedi Master Luke Skywalker to teach her in the ways of the Force, but he resists, sensing darkness in her future. While Leia and Han's corrupted son, Kylo Ren, is struggling between his duty to his master, Snokes, and his connection to Rey. Cool. Hey, so fair warning, folks. We're going to try to avoid spoilers. Uh, but I figure most of you have seen this film already, so no, no doubt we'll skirt a bit close to spoiler territory. But we are going to also record a second Spoiler zone, spoiler alert, uh, spoiler alert first, by the way. Yes. Where we'll just uh, assume you've seen the film and go hard at it. Um, yeah. And really address things that, you know, we wouldn't address in a regular review. That's right. So this will be spoiler free. So you can listen to this relatively confident you're not going to get anything spoiled. Yeah, look, so I guess I'll get some of my issues out of the way first if I can. <laughs> yeah, we're well, focusing on the podcast here or just... <laughs> <laughs> issues with you, Duncan. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because... There's a lot I really liked about The Last Jedi, and I want to spend some time addressing the things I thoroughly enjoyed, but I think it's easier just to go, okay, look, these are things I, I'm going to struggle with. 
Um, look, the film opens strong with Poe Dameron being Poe Dameron, mm. uh, flying heroically, and as he says, blowing stuff up. Although, I don't know how you feel about his comical exchange with General Hux. I, I kind of sensed that, I think I knew when you were watching it, even though <laughs> we were in different parts of the country, because I found felt this great disturbance in the force, <laughs> <laughs> as though my colleague had been offended greatly. Um, but whether or not you dig that might be a personal thing, I suspect. Uh, but it's the second act where things get awkward for me. Mm-hmm. We have three stories here. The first is Ray with Luke, while Kylo Ren makes contact with her via the Force. And I'll get to that later. The second is Finn, a new character, Rose at Space Casablanca, visiting Space Ricks um, to find the space letters of access or whatever, <laughs> uh, to help the Resistance. Anyway, well, the third is Poe effectively going a little rogue, and not in a helpful kind of rogue one way either. No. Now, Duncan, you might remember back in the day when we were both making promos for TV shows together, and I used to complain that every single problem on EastEnders stemmed from someone not telling someone else something they should, yeah. and everything blowing up from there. Well, that's the B and C storylines of this of, of this film. Forced dramatic situations that probably shouldn't even exist if our heroes just talked it out a little bit. Yeah. Poe in particular behaves in a way that suggests the next film in the franchise should be called Star Wars, The Trial of Poe Dameron for Treason. <laughs> Uh, the script also seems to hand, hand wave its way through situations. I mean, I'm still unclear how the Rebels' escape plan, uh, carefully, ridiculously so even, kept secret, is suddenly exposed. Mm. I, I honestly you haven't spoken to anyone who can tell me that. No. Um, and then we have one character escaping potential death and showing up later at a crucial time to help save the day. All off screen with a throwaway line of dialogue to cover it. While another pair of characters are seemingly and spectacularly the only survivors of a massive explosion, they really should have taken their lives as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a total geek, I'm not sure how I feel, I mean, this is a geek conversation, right? Yeah. How I feel about the inclusion of technology like hyperspace tracking, the sudden development of cloaking technology, much less the explosion of previously unknown force powers. Yeah. Um, that's maybe a bit geeky, and I suspect most people won't care about that last point. Yeah. What the film does get right for large chunks of it are the triumvirate of Ray, Kylo, and Luke. There is this new bent that you talk about to the force abilities of Ray and Kylo, that allowed for a more pleasing visual display of their connection. They kind of had to get them together without getting them together, you know, and that is a challenge, I guess. And before you start saying that's messing with the rules of the force, then I've got one word for you, and that's midi-chlorines. So, I, you know, I don't have an issue with it. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't because at least there's a purpose to it. That's The end result is pleasing, so that, that to me, the end justify the means. Almost you know? every film past... Um the first Star Wars, which I'll call A New Hope for those people mm. younger than me, um, has added new force powers to it. Yeah. So the idea that these are like, oh, where are these force powers come from? Well, that's that's how the franchise works. Yeah. And I think it's only if uh, midichlorians, it, it adds nothing. So that's the problem. Whereas I think at least with this connection, there is a reason behind that that I think propels it forward. So I'm okay with that. Sure. And it feels like something that could exist in, the, yeah. in, the, in this world. Ray is the idealistic center that this... Sh- you know, should be built around. She's believable, convincing. I think she really nails the drama and the humor, the conflict and the action. And I found that Ridley and Driver elevate each other's game. Um, and as Ray starts off by seeing, especially past events in black and white, as the film progresses, she kind of moves slightly more towards the gray area, which I liked. These quiet times they share are among the most effective in the film, I found actually. Yep. And likewise, Hamill is on good form, relishing his uh, return to the Star Wars universe, clearly. His training scenes with Ray are entertaining and he, and he certainly gets the lion's share of coolness in the finale. But there's elements that we'll talk about in the spoiler zone that really frustrate me with his mm. character. And these are failings of the script rather than anything Hamill himself is doing, I think. No, no, I agree. I mean, for the star of this film for me is, is the returning Mark Hamill. Yeah. You know, trading his wide-eyed naivety and eventual embrace of his Jedi calling for kind of fear and reluctance. He's become this bitter, grouchy old man of the Force, and I kind of love it. Mm-hmm. I love what he's doing anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love Kylo Ren in this as well. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he, he really he really stepped up from Force Awakens. Force Awakens, I was a bit iffy on him. Yeah, me too. And um, particularly in what they did with him in the third act, I think really kind of killed him for me a little bit yeah. uh, in, in Force Awakens. But in this one, he's in the zone in this. And I, and, and I think in the, in the finale in this case, I think he's actually one of the strongest. Yeah, I'm still not a massive Ray fan. And I'll tell you why, she doesn't progress as a character much for me. She mm-hmm. was awesome all the way through Force Awakens, and she remains an awesome character here, you know, able yeah. to do anything. And that's not particularly compelling for me, I think. He yeah. doesn't grow much from her contact with Luke, although she has some revelations. Mm-hmm. But 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 that's not a that's not a rub again on, on the actress and what she's doing. And mm-hmm. the work with r- interactions between 
Rin and Ray are fantastic, you know? Yeah. I just really dug Kylo Ren. The, the sense of a struggle to find his path in the universe is really mm. clear. And his temptation by the light side of the force. And you kind of sense that yearning that he wants to share this with someone. Mm. You know, he wants to share it with someone who can understand his path. Yes, and I think that that understanding is great, that, that, that need for understanding. And there's a, there's a part that happens kind of, <laughs> traditionally would happen um, towards the end of a film, but yeah. in this film, suddenly, because it's so freaking long, yeah. uh, it happens in the midway through, yeah. that was the, probably the one moment of emotional resonance kind of decision-making that I really felt connected to, that I felt there was tension and genuine suspense with. Right. I mean, Oscar Isaacs has proved he can carry a movie or a TV series on his own, but he's kind of, I, I've just found that he was just left to literally sit down and learn lessons for a good two thirds of this film. Um, he basically does something cool at the beginning and then something cool at the end. Then the Granted. rest of the time he's just like sitting around, which is, that's Han Solo among the Ewoks basically. And then Finn's entire storyline was pointless. He's partnered with Rose, a new character who begins promisingly enough, but then becomes quite bland spouting dialogue that sounds like it comes from a self-help book. And Benicio del Toro is an actor of considerable presence, magnetism, and menace, as displayed perfectly in something like Sicario, where you just can't take your eyes off him. And yet here it just seems lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I think the problem with Poe is, I, d I just don't know who, what his character is no. well enough. I, I genuinely believe that probably the actor doesn't know either. Yeah. Um, and that's that's terrible. You yeah. Know, that, that leaves him flailing a bit. Yeah. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, he's not given a lot to do here. Um, the B and C storylines, as I like to think of them, with the A storyline being Ray, yeah, Ren and Luke. That um, the B and C storylines are really weak. Yeah. And the A storyline is really compelling. Yeah. But they just haven't figured out what to cut away to. No. You know. And and therein lies a the problem, I think. Poe wasn't really formed. I mean, there was there was talk that he was supposed to die in Force Awakens. Yeah. And then they managed to talk him out, or he talked him out he of it or something. Out, yeah. And so then they kept him in. And I don't think that bodes particularly well for a guy that you're pinning quite a lot of action on. If you're like, oh, we were going to kill this yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can understand if you're going to kill this guy. I, I remember uh, Breaking Bad, which Brian Johnson directed some of. Um, they were talking about Jesse Pinkman in that, and they were actually going to kill him off. And then they yeah. realized, we've got this great character. There's no way we're going to kill him. I don't think that they thought that with Poe. They didn't think, we've got this great character. No. no. I think I, like I, we've got Oscar Isaacs. I, I read that, and, and this is getting way off track, but you know, yeah. that's what we do. It's what I do. That's what I do. <laughs> and that's what I do. Frequently. Um, I read this interview where he, he was talking about the character saying that he believed he was attracted to Finn, like mm. it was a romantic love, yeah. potentially, and that's how he played it. Mm. And I remember telling someone, and they looked really confused, and I said, why is that confusing? What else has he got to do? Yeah. I, and it, it makes sense for me. He probably read that script and had to read something into what was his character's internal thought process yeah. because there's not a lot there. Yeah. Apparently there's quite a theory flying around about those two. Yeah. And there's even a line of uh, Finn's in Force Awakens, apparently, where he says to Ray, he says, oh, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a cute boyfriend? Yeah. And as someone, I was talking to someone at work and they were like, a, a heterosexual guy would not ask whether you had a cute boyfriend. They'd ask whether you had a boyfriend. They wouldn't ask whether you had a cute boyfriend. He wants to know where all the cute boys are. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> basically yeah, totally. it. There's, there's a great scene where um, also the... the Poe and Finn meet up, and after uh, Finn thought Poe was dead, mm. and he's, he's got the jacket on, and he's like, no, yeah. keep it, it looks good on you. Yeah. And the way he looks him up and down, and there's even a little bite of his lip when he's yeah. looking at Finn, love it, yeah. love it so much. <laughs> I'm shipping those guys pretty, yeah. pretty much here. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that happens. So. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. It's happening in my slash fiction, um, fan fiction I'm writing, <laughs> by the way. Um, I'll, I'll put the link on the website. <laughs> 50 Shades of Finn. Yeah. Look, so for me, uh, it's a mixed bag of Jedi mind tricks. Mm -hmm. uh, so very pretty to look at as yeah. well. Uh, with two strong force fuel turns and one very strong A story. Unfortunately, what I think of as the B and C stories of the second act really drag it down. And there's some story decisions, decisions that I'll get into in the spoiler alert, spoiler zone, yes. which is what we're going to call it, uh, that stop this from being the new Empire Strikes Back that everyone seems to want it to be. That's right. Uh, I agree. And um, as a tease for the spoiler alert, spoiler zone, is that uh, it's just too long. It does sure. not need to be two and a half hours long. Yeah. Especially when you have weak B and C storylines, as you say. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> All right, the red carpet is, has been rolled out. Duncan and I are wearing our third finest T-shirts, and we've <laughs> gone through all our awards cards to make sure we don't have a La La Land somehow confused with Moonlight, <laughs> uh, which can mean only one thing. It's time for the annual Spoiler Alert Awards. 
where we look back over a year of film watching and hand out a pile of little golden trophies for the best and worst of 2017. And we should really make some names for these, I was thinking. Yeah. Like maybe Sandler's for the bad ones and maybe Vontrez for the good ones. Yeah, I like that. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, we here at Spoiler Learn aren't fans of the actress and actor categories normally. Mm-hmm. Preferring to just hand out an award for the single best performance. At least that's what I've done mm-hmm. historically. But one advantage of the actor and actress division is it does allow me to do what I'm just about to do. Name two performances my favourite performances of the year. <laughs> Yay. Right. Cheating. Yeah. Love it. Um, as the year began, I saw one of the greatest films of the year and the winner eventually of the Oscar for best film, Moonlight. A rich, beautiful movie full of delights. None more so than Mahashala Ali's best supporting actor turn as a drug dealer turned father figure mm-hmm. to a lost young man. Like a standout performance in the same year's overrated biopic hidden figures, really didn't care for that, but Ali was in that and, and great. And, and here again, he's magnetic and sympathetic by doing very little, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where he teaches Chiron to swim, gently cradling him in the, the water as the, way, as the waves sort of bob up and down, times covering the camera's lens, is, I thought, one of the year's great movie moments. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely scene. And at the other end of the scale is Jennifer Lawrence, Swinging gloriously for the fences is the only truly relatable human character in Darren o- Aronofsky's art house head scratcher. And is inexplicably packaged as a multiplex disaster. <laughs> uh, Mother. I kind of love Mother, though I sympathize with those who do not care for its Rosemary's Baby meets Ken Russell charms. But I think you have to appreciate Lawrence, who gives it all and some. Maybe not delivering the year's best performance, but definitely delivering the year's most performance. Um, and I kind of love that. I like those sort of. You yeah. know, um, good fun. And um, I went with someone to this because I had a free ticket. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I just went on Facebook and said, look, first person to contact me wants to go. And someone did. And they hated it. Nice. Hated this film. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. Because it's one of those films that will just, yeah. you know. Well, yeah. I mean, you and I are big Von Trier film fans. Yeah. And, and it's the same thing with that. If someone comes to me and is like, I hated, you know, Dungeon in the Dark or I hated Antichrist. I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. Like you're not going to get yeah, any argument yeah. for me. I loved it. You know, it's the same with Lynch. And so I, I, I like that, you know, kind of thing as well. So there's nothing worse than a middling film for me. Oh, what's the point? Well, that leads nicely into best trailer to a film that I haven't seen. And that is Darren Aronofsky's divisive mother. Ah, yeah. Uh, replete with telltale pretentious exclamation mark at ah. the end of it. Mother. I was like, Oh, this is going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> The trailer is a minute long and a string of suggestive but random dialogue flows, but it's devoid of vision until a final extreme close-up of star Jennifer Lawrence's face. The trailer is the kind of ballsy announcement that needs to have someone with the strength of reputation as Aronofsky to deliver on it. And uh, I was really taken with the trailer. I went in the next day to work and I was like, you guys got to see this trailer. I mean, yeah. And the fact, again, that I saw this in the multiplex, I saw the trailer playing in the multiplex. I was like, whoa. You've seen the poster too, I? Yeah, the poster's The poster great. is gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I elected not to have a best poster award because yeah, I know posters. Are, they're a funny thing. There's some good, uh, but uh, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, so did I. This is one that I haven't seen because unfortunately this came out just uh, as I was preparing to go overseas, so I didn't actually get right, yeah. get around yeah. to watching this one um, at the movies. So yeah, but I'm really looking forward to checking it out. Uh, look, I was listening to an old episode of our podcast recently <laughs> where we both spoke glowingly of the completely unexpected joys of the fifth. Fast and the Furious film. <laughs> uh, then in the news segment, I somewhat mockingly, as if <laughs> this will never happen, uh, reported that Vin Diesel planned two more films in the franchise to, you know, wrap up all those loose threads. What a ridiculous idea. <laughs> and here we are, a handful of years later, and we're sitting at episode eight of what looks like an unkillable franchise that has become a bloated mess of endless characters, cartoon CGI, and the repeated use of the word family as some sort of thematic glue to hold the whole horrid mess together. <laughs> Whatever goodwill the fifth film earned through its muscular, stylishly bonkers action scenes has been steadily drained away from me by increasingly rubbery CGI, implausible action sequences, and a kind of joyless bombast. The last one brought back a pair of previous film villains uh, and a woefully charismaless Scott Eastwood <laughs> to join a team so stretched that apparently Vin Diesel and The Rock can no longer share the screen together. <laughs> I don't know whether that's like two black holes coming together and yeah. that's like... <laughs> destroy the earth if they get too close. The laws of physics, once cheerfully tweaked, are now ritualistically torn to pieces by a motorcade of indestructible flying cars. There it seems there's nowhere for this franchise to go but into space. Which should not be an issue because I'm pretty confident that Vin and his team, and The Rock of course, can survive in a zero-G vacuum as long as they're in their indestructible cars of course. But I for one would, would rather this whole thing just finished. Yeah. Just ended. Now. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I see that um, Tyrese as well said that... Uh, 
he got into a bit of a strop saying that uh, he didn't want to appear in it because the rock, the next one, because the rock was just turning it all into about the rock. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was talk about a spin-off, a Statham Rock spin-off, because apparently people love those two guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, most surprisingly moving moment award goes to George Lazenby weeping openly and becoming Bond. Uh, a playful mix of documentary mixed with entertainingly acted recreations of the Australian actor who portrayed James Bond in the solitary film before notoriously walking away from the role. Lazenby was a playboy, a cad, a dreamer, a laid-back, outback kid who through a mix of determination and luck, landed the most coveted role of the 60s. Becoming Bond has Lazenby tell, and no doubt embellish, his wild stories. And when he keeps circling back throughout his story, he keeps coming to a woman he kept crossing paths with. They treat each other quite poorly, but were madly in love. And to this day, he wonders how she is now. And the gentle tears of an old man reminiscing on lost love is an unexpected result of a vibrant, fun film I'd recommend to Bond and non-Bond fans alike. That sounds lovely. Yeah, it's really nice, and it's really well made. Um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, in tone, not not visually, of um, The Kid Stays in the Picture, the Robert Evans one. Yeah. And because George Lazenby is kind of notorious, all the women he was sleeping with and all the wild parties he went to and all the great times he had and all the kind of you know crazy stuff he did. And a lot of people were like, yeah, I'm not sure how much of this is true. But... Um, it makes for entertaining, and then they recreate it with all of these actors. It's, it's a nice little piece, actually. Look, I struggled mightily to choose my favourite scene of the year. I thought about the sudden lump I developed in my throat and the way it seemed to be randomly raining, and kind of both my eyes, weirdly, as a flotilla of beaten-up civilian boats chugged up to rescue the hordes of British soldiers in Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought about the kinetic, stylized opening heist of Baby Driver or the gorgeous trench scene from Wonder Woman, and even better, the conversation between Michael Keaton and Tom Holland in the back of a limo in Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, and, of course, I didn't pause for a second to think of anything I watched from Alien Covenant. <laughs> Not a thing. I did think about um, the red throne room scene from um, The Last Jedi, by the way, and I'm sure yeah. we'll touch on that later. Yeah. But I love that. I love mm. the colours. I love that kind of Akira Kurosawa meets Mario Bava kind of look about yeah. it. It's gorgeous. But I think the clear winner, really, is the three-way love scene from Blade Runner 2049. Mm-hmm. Uh, a gorgeous, technologically enhanced menage a trois between Ryan Gosling's Blade Runner, his holographic love interest, and a replicant sex worker she hires and then tries to merge with in this kind of fascinating, intimate, and sometimes creepy seduction. Mm. It's wonderfully realised with their bodies and faces seeming to merge and then drift away. Uh, the imperfections very deliberately, very elegantly, and it's kind of strangely designed. It's a beautiful film throughout. Um, mm. Easily the best-looking film of the year for, m for me. And stop me if you've heard this before. Stop me. Roger Deakins is a lock to win the Oscar. Yeah, that's it. You hear Absolute that, Deakins? Absolute lock. You just lost yourself an yeah. Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I cursed him, didn't I? Yeah. You put the spoiler alert gypsy curse on him, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really love that scene too. That was great. It's really striking. And it actually reminded me of um, Spike Jones's Her. Oh, right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A similar kind of themed scene in there as well. That kind of unattainable uh, love, I suppose. But yeah, really striking. The best non-superhero film award goes to Captain Fantastic. Uh, Matt Ross has crafted a perfect film for our times and in his canniest move cast Viggo Mortensen. Mortensen generously brings out the best in the young cast surrounding him, especially his eldest son, played by George Mackay. Viggo's method acting style is perfectly suited to the titular character who is trying to raise his kids in the northwest wilderness of America. It is both a confronting and a reassuring film, uplifting and heartbreaking, and Mortensen's journey is perfect. Raising these kids in the manner he does asks the question, is he doing the right or the wrong thing? Just like life, the answers are nuanced and varied. And it reminded me of the documentary The Wolf Pack uh, a couple of years ago about a group of boys raised unconventionally by their hermetic sealed-off parents. Uh, I'm not a parent, but I would imagine it would be kind of liberating to see this film where it shows an extreme example of child-rearing and displays both its advantages and disadvantages, where it says every day is a chance to make a difference and you can falter and regather yourself and you can learn and you can improve. And uh, it's a film that really stuck with me and Vigo is just perfect in this. Yeah, you you spoke about it during the year and I thought, oh, I've got to put that on my list or mm. put it on my list. And now I've really got to jump it on my list yeah. now that you've returned to it. So yeah. Obviously... In your head, it's it stood that test of time, and it is. And I think there's something about Viggo Mortensen. I don't know what it is, but there's something about him, and particularly to do with um, family and kind of principles. Yeah, the road he did it so beautifully in. Yeah, even uh, history of violence has touches of that as well. And there's something about that guy that's you know that kind of 
he reminds me of an actor that would have been back in the golden age of Hollywood as like a, a Jimmy Stewart kind of principled person. Yeah, and, yeah I and, can see that. And, you know, he's just that kind of, well, Gary Cooper in, in High Noon, you know, you put him into that and he's like, I've got to do this thing. I don't want to do it, but I've got to do it. And he's got a tough but vulnerable edge to him. And I don't know if there's too many actors around who can actually do that. And he just perfectly cast in this. He was yeah. nominated for Oscars and Golden Globes. I don't yeah, think he, he didn't was. win any, but... No, I don't think so either. Yeah, it's... Uh, oh, cool, man. Yeah, really good. All right, so we're special effects, and welcome to the stage, Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Now, from memory, the effects in the first Kingsman lean towards the unbelievable, but I don't remember it looking quite as cheap as the Golden Circle does. It's at its worst in sweeping wide shots, a crane lifting a cage, carrying poor, poor Emily Watson atop a vast tower of similar prisons, looks clunky and cartoonish. Where the hell did those cages all come from anyway? <laughs> but at least it's better than the scene at the White House, complete with limos and an audience that look like they've been physically cut out of a glossy magazine and glued to the screen with paste like the collages we'd make back in primary school. And then there's a meat grinder with Blaze that moves with the complexity and realism of an early Microsoft screensaver. Say that one with the pipes that endlessly kind of cycles around and fills up the screen, you know, the yeah. pipe one? Uh, it just looks so cheap. It makes an already ugly film even uglier. <laughs> well, I haven't seen this one. So I haven't seen uh, Golden Circle. Oh, you have not? No. I watched the first one. I quite enjoyed it. I mean, as, we, as except for that final line, which we put up on the tree of woe. Um, I, I quite enjoyed the, the, the first one. So, yeah, I saw the second one, and I was like, oh, I'll get around to watching this. Oh, okay. Won't, won't be scrambling out to see it. All right. Mm. Mm. Um, look, this is uh, not a film that was released this year, but a present to myself award this year is discovering... Vittorio De Sica's Two Women. He's long been a f my favourite Italian filmmaker, but this film had eluded me for years, and I finally tracked it down. The story of a mother attempting to protect her innocent daughter from the harsh realities of war as it comes crashing from every direction into Italy in World War II. It has a scintillating performance from Sophia Loren at a belligerent and vulnerable best, with heartbreaking and comedic turns around every corner. Two Women remains a riveting watch even over 50 years later, and uh, I recommend checking it out if you can oh, hunt cool. it down. All right, favourite time in the cinema? So my favourite time in the cinema award goes to the only film I saw twice in the cinema this year, uh, John Wick 2. Gloriously, gorgeously vicious as the first John Wick, but this time with a better opponent in common and more variety in its wonderfully staged, intricate fight scenes. Uh, the Hitman's Hogwarts world of gunsmiths, gold coins and assassins' rules of conduct is expanded to include new cities and to my great delight, a very droll Peter Serafinowicz and a very cool Franco Nero. But once again, it's arguably... Action Cinema's greatest star, Keanu Freakin' Reeves. There you go, throwing it out there. Holding it all together with a sharp suit, a dry delivery, a cool ponytail, an endless supply of bone-snapping moves, and a fearsome fuselage of headshots has made this the best action film of the year, I would say, and my favourite 90-odd minutes inside a movie theatre. Oh, great. I'm going to have to check this one out. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just great fun. It's, mm. um, have you seen the first one? No, I still haven't seen the first one either. I actually prefer this one. Really? Um, it, it's less elegantly plotted. I mean, the first one, as you probably know, has a pretty, it's a bit corny, the, mm -hmm. but but this one is just really like, let's find a way to make him get back into killing people again. Yeah. So, you know, it's a little contrived, but it's fine because once he's in action and the ending of it is just, ah, oh, so good. Oh, I'll have to do these Love back. the ending. I'll have to do these back to back. And you know how it is with the endings of films, eh? How they stick their landing makes you look back on the film with such... Yeah, you really changed the way you look back on the ending of John Wick Two is just perfect, I think. The Kirby Enthusiasm Award goes to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. This year, the Oscars had a climactic screw up that was less a car crash and more like the motorway pileup from the beginning of Final Destination Two. You know, just logs flying out of trucks, just straight <laughs> smashing through people's heads. Uh, as the envelope producers were the catalyst for an assault of awkwardness that made casualties of. Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty, and the entire cast and crews of both La La Land and Moonlight. But this is also a preemptive award for, for next year's show because the producers must be pulling their hair out quicker than they pulled the short straw when they have to deal with all the all-consuming sex abuse allegations that have oh, torn a hole through Tinseltown. <laughs> they could have like a, you know, in-memorandum-style section with a photo montage set to mournful music of all the abuse victims or all the abusers, but... With that number to cover, it would probably mean the show would be like 17 hours long. Um, instead, I'm just expecting Jimmy Kimmel to fire awkward one-liners out. That'll be what happens. Yeah. yeah. It's oh. going to be a brutal watch. Yeah, it truly is, eh? Yeah. Um, at work, I had to cut a promo for the show about the history of comedy. Yeah. And the show's only a year old. And I'm watching and thinking, oh, no, I can't use that Cosby shot. <laughs> 
Yeah, better not put in that uh, Louis C.K. <laughs> Ooh, and there's Al Franken. <laughs> really hard work. Eh? There's so many gonna, people. It's going to be Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Eh? There, there are a lot of people that are just like, oh, no. Aren't, <laughs> <laughs> eh? All right. Now we're up to one of my favorite awards. Uh, worst film of the year. Ooh. Step up to the stage once again. Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Oh, right. Yeah. You vile, ugly lump of misbegotten sequel trash. It's a sequel that firstly fundamentally does not get why the first film worked. Whereas for good or for bad, the first Kingsman trade in shock value, killing off an entire church full of people, killing off a main character after mid, uh, about midway through the film, and ending with a very poor taste anal sex gag. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sequel resurrects Colin Firth. Uh, that's awful, by the way. Um, he looks like he doesn't care. He looks so uninvested. Mm. Uh, it puts his hero together with the the butt of the last film's tasteless joke, by the way, pun intended, mm-hmm. in a relationship no one in the world cares about, mm-hmm. and tries to one-up that joke, would you believe, oh. with a similarly distasteful gag involving a woman who states that she'd quite happily be peed upon, and a tracking device that inexplicably must be inserted into her vagina. Of course. Yep. Worse, the film is more interested, and this is, I think, where it doesn't get why that first film worked. It's more interested in Eggsy's moral dilemma about cheating on his girlfriend, not the fact that he's violating another woman with this device and forcing us to watch the CGI recreation of the bug's POV travelling inside her. It's truly needlessly, humorlessly gross. And that would be bad enough, but it tries to make it about poor old Eggsy and, oh, he's betraying his girlfriend and will his relationship survive. Not this hideous thing that's happening. But let's also add the aforementioned woeful CG, the performance by Colin Firth that seems to have had all the life sucked out of it, and stupid, stupid robot killer dogs. <laughs> and by the way, if you do cast Channing Tatum in your action film, at least give him something to do. He's in this for a couple of minutes. Mm. He has one action scene, even though he turns out to be the ally of the Kingsman. He beats them up, which only establishes him as a badass, which is wasted because he's not in the rest of the film. Right. And it makes um, our heroes look like wimps. Yeah. And if you are going to have Tatum and Elton John, by the way, in an action film, and Elton has more scenes more dialogue, and is involved in more fight scenes, <laughs> then your film's got a really serious problem. It sounds like a fever dream. This is just craziness. When you've got Elton John <laughs> doing flying sidekicks and looking at the camera and almost winking in slow motion, I mean, I don't even know what to do with that, you know? What is Matthew Vaughan thinking? This is still a Matthew Vaughan joint, is it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I can't... can't he's... T- he must be involved. I mean, yeah, I don't know whether he's, he's obviously the producer. I can't remember if he directed it or not. But it's just, it's just a complete mess. It looks ugly. I mean, there's a lot of CG and it looks terrible. Every time there's a wide shot, it looks clunky. Mm. Um, Colin Firth just looks, oh, you know, he just looks like a ghost of Colin Firth. Yeah. Um, and it's sad to see his character back in this. And it's inexplicable that he should be. I mean, yeah. he clearly, that's one of the things that was good about the first film is when it kills someone, it killed them. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it killed him off and it seemed incredibly final and it was bold, but nah. Yeah, the, we saw this in the trailer, didn't we? And there was just undeath returns. Yeah. yeah it was shocking. Yeah, by the way, and I didn't notice it, but so Eggsy's girlfriend is the Swedish princess from the end of the first film. Right. Together, and there's a scene where she uses a pin, cat, a pin t- um, code to enter her pin, which is 2625, which is, by the way, A-N-A-L. That's the sort of film we're dealing with. Wow. Some, some pretty uh, highbrow jokes going on there. Whew. The Have You Tried Embracing an Axe Wielding Maniac Award goes to the worldwide box office. Like every single film in the top 15 films of the year was either a remake or a sequel, with one solitary exception Wonder Woman. And even that is a bit generous when you consider that is based on a comic book that had previously spawned a long running TV series. What I'm saying isn't new. In fact, it has become cliche to say that Hollywood is out of ideas. But when I referred to 1968 at the head of the podcast, I mentioned that the top film was 2001, A Space Odyssey, as well as having other visionary works such as Planet of the Apes, Night of the Living Dead, and Rosemary's Baby. The top 10 didn't involve a single remake or sequel. But what 1968 and 2017 top grossing films do have in common is what Simon mentioned this time last year. The horror genre is delivering. Not just edge-of-your-seat thrillers, but thought-provoking social commentary and racial and gender diversity. If I made a list of the films that stuck with me this year, it would have horror films like The Love Witch, Split, The Invitation, It, Get Out. Even the trailer for Happy Death Day 
comes to mind. Yeah, this is, I mean, I think I said it, it might have even been in my list of things last year that mm. um, Art House Horror is my favourite new thing of the year. Yeah. Um, it's, that stayed, but um, like you say, a lot of other commercial horror hits have come along and been good. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty damn good. Yeah, that's right. And then, yeah, like you say, with Get Out, um, I saw It Comes at Night as well this year, which I thought was mm. sublime. Horror's in a really strong space. It is, yeah. And it's taking, I mean, you know, like we're, we're, the Love Witch stuck, to, stuck yep. in mind. That was really a highlight of the film festival. And 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 what that's dealing with is to, talking about gender and then and then Get Out's talking about racial issues. And then there's, um, I saw The Invitation. Have you seen that? Um, and that deals with some pretty heavy kind of topics. So it's not a, it's not a, it's not a great film, but the topics it's dealing with like grief and like how people process it. Yeah. And for a horror film, that's just amazing. Horror know? strength though has always been that it can talk about difficult topics. Yeah. It's about the things you fear. That's right. So th- therefore, it gives it a license to sort of make entertainment out of your terrors. Yeah. And that's 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 a strong premise. Not all horror movies, most wouldn't deliver on it. Mm. But we're getting a lot of films that are. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, bring on the horror. I'm really looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Simon's always been a horror man, and I've enjoyed horror films, but I just noticed, like, when I went through the ones that stuck out to yeah. me, I was like, whoa, you know, there's yeah. some really big ones I there. I also think um, 2016 was very strong as well. Mm. Yeah, these last couple of years have been really good for horror. Yeah. Mm. All right, and so my last award goes to Film of the Year, and there were four films in my Best of Year shortlist, and I'm torn between two very different films at the top. Uh, Nocturnal Animals, mm-hmm. Tom Ford's latest with another great Jake Gyllenhaal performance and more excellent underrated work, uh, or at least under-awarded work maybe, by Amy Adams. It was far from perfect, but it was dense and it stuck with me for many days afterwards. It really did. I agree but with I feel one. I have to go with a very, very different film. One that aside from the chronology of the way the various stories unfolded was distinctly unfashionably even old school. Uh, I'm talking about Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love World War II stories, so perhaps that's another reason this really stuck with me. Those are about old-fashioned courage and resolve, and that's what Dunkirk was all about. There's no attempt here to juice things up with a intrusive uh, CGI action recreations or shaky camera work, or to shock us Private Ryan styles with explosions of gore. Just the often slow, often silent tension of men waiting to die, and other men clenching their jaws and pointing their fishing boats in the direction of death, as the mar- marvellous Mark Rylance does. When there are moments of heroism and glory, they shine through. Um, a plane shot down at a vital moment at the end. Or the wonderful scene, which I talked about before, of the boats arriving at Dunkirk while a tearful Kenneth Branagh watches on. Ah, oh, that really got me, eh? Yeah. Right in the heart. It all looks and feels so real that it reminds me how rare a thing that is nowadays. Mm. That with all the skills at a filmmaker's disposal, the simple believability of a line of soldiers shivering as they lay on a beach it seems like an epic achievement. Mm. Uh, it's direct, restrained, and that's what the material needed, and that's what the story deserved, I felt. It's few glorious flights of fancy feel earned. And by the time Churchill's famous speech of defiance is read aloud, it feels so right, and yet it feels so, ah, it's going to sound ridiculous, but so modern. I feel like I'm in that moment. It mm. doesn't feel like a piece of history anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to me that we never see the enemy as well. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting, and I didn't really realise that until the end of the film. I hadn't seen any. I'd seen German planes, maybe. I'd heard gunshots. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I really love this film. Mm-hmm. It's left a really strong impression with me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it too. I love the plane sequences in there. I thought that that was just, the, I, I could watch them like every week. I just thought they were brilliant. Yeah, they were really well candled. Yeah, they were, they were, they were fantastic. Edge of seat stuff. And, um, yeah, and I, I love this film and I thought Christopher Nolan, what I really enjoyed about what he did is hearing back. He's done so many films recently that have been like really, yeah. you know, we're talking about Star Wars being two and a half hours long. This one's one hour forty, I think. Yeah, one like hour forty. Yeah, and that's that's great. You know, like I appreciated that because I, I don't, I, I couldn't handle that film. At, yeah, as good as it was, I couldn't handle that. It was blown out to two and a half hours. No, it's a good duration. Eh? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and um, I really liked Mark Rylance. I thought he was great in it. Yeah, he was just yeah quality. So um, yeah, I agree with that. And that's a good one to end on. Positive note. Yeah, positive note. Yeah, nice one. Spoiler alert. Okay, this is the part of the show. Normally, we do a tree of woe, and at the end of the year, we customarily do our tree of woe for the year, the most annoying or horrendous thing of the year. And um, I feel we're not really going to do it this month, mainly because we covered it last month in extensive detail. Yeah, it's obviously the endless uh, sexual harassment stories we're hearing coming out of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, that has taken over the second half of this year. Yeah. Um, and rightfully so. I don't know if I've got any more that I could add that I didn't say last month. No, I um, I agree. It's the same. 
Still the same. It's still the same. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it'll keep coming, and it, and it should. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and I don't really want to add much more to that because, no. you know, by the time you listen to this, there'll be someone new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, he's uh, hoping that um, 2018 we can just get stuck into some really minor you know, uh, frivolous things oh. that annoy us on the tree of woe. Oh, rather than totally. Kind of like I say, listening stuff. back to some of the old episodes, I found where I was complaining about distance. <laughs> like a, I was misunderstanding of the range of a thing. And I was like, yeah. man, that is just nitpickery. Sal- eh? Salad days of the tree oh, of woe. Totally. <laughs> there clearly must have been nothing going on in the world at <laughs> yeah. that time. This is the one thing that's bothered me yeah, in the last 30 this. days. Yeah, it's this. <laughs> I got hit up over it too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did. I did. I got some anger going. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and so uh, that's spoiler alert for this month and this year for 2017. Yeah, it is. It is. I just want to say, check out the spoiler alert spoiler zone. Spoiler yep. zone once you're ready. We will have a few uh, more thoughts about Star Wars that we felt we didn't want to um, discuss here. Yeah, because we want to. I mean, most of you will have probably seen Star Wars by the sure. time this comes out, but hey, some of you might not, and it's yeah, you know, we wouldn't want you to have to avoid listening to the podcast just because yep. you haven't seen Star Wars. So, um, yeah, and I just want to thank everyone for listening and everyone coming on to the Facebook page and all the rest of it. And uh, we've got a few things developing um, as well for 2018. Sure spoiler alert. Yeah, and the track we're going out to is? Is uh, Carrie Fisher. In honour of Carrie Fisher, we felt the only decent thing to do was to go out with her singing the Life Day song from the Star Wars Holiday Special. Also because we play this every year at this time of year. Yes, look, Disney, JJ, if you're going to make Star Wars films every single year, and we're going to have to review it every single year because no one's going to be talking about anything else in December. Yeah. You're going to be listening to this every single year. That is going to be our thing. So, yeah. um, And it's also obviously a lovely, lovely song. That's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> so um, happy Life Day, everyone. Happy Life Day. Merry Christmas. Um, and uh, we will see, have a great new year. Yep. We'll see you uh, next month and uh, in 2018. Take care, everyone. Cheers. We celebrate our day.